Visceral, Motiga, Boss Key Productions, Runic, Wargaming Seattle, Gazillion Entertainment, Capcom Vancouver, Telltale Games, Disney Canada, Treon Worlds, Bandai Namco Vancouver, Jam City, Activision Blizzard, ArenaNet, and EA Australia. That's a brief, not entirely exhaustive list of video game studios that suffered significant or total layoffs since late 2017, and the latter half of that list has all been within the last four to five months. All in all, you're talking at least three to 4,000 individuals in a year and change, oftentimes unceremoniously, without any warning, and without any hope of ever recovering from the financial hit because their company doesn't see fit to help them out as they cut them off. Couple that with reports of major companies like Grand Theft Auto's Rockstar obligating their employees into a cycle of crunch, that is, an ingrained culture of dramatically unhealthy working hours, sometimes as high as 18 a day for weeks at a time, and you begin to suspect that something is rotten in the state of video games. On this week's episode of the 1099, I spoke with Game Workers Unite co-founder Emma Kenema. That's a pseudonym she's chosen so she doesn't get blacklisted by major game companies. And that alone might tell you all you need to know about how the industry's shareholders and executives might feel about their employees working towards unionization. It's a tumultuous time in the games industry, and Game Workers Unite itself was born as a result of this worker mistreatment and received a major profile boost after a standing room only Game Developers Conference panel on the subject back in March 2018. Since then, GWU has used their growing voice to fight for the collective power of workers, and with 2019's Game Developers Conference on the horizon, I knew I had to speak at length with someone like Emma to understand where the industry is right now and how unionization might impact, not necessarily solve, the issue of game studios throwing employees to the wind or overworking them to the point of illness. We covered a lot of ground here, and if you consider yourself someone who loves video games, I think you owe it to yourself to hear how the people who probably make your favorite games are striving to improve the working conditions of every programmer, every designer, and every artist in the industry. And yes, we even talked about that Firebobby code hashtag. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not even for a few more years, but change seems to be coming to the world of game development. But it's going to take a hell of a lot of effort on the parts of everyone involved. And this is undoubtedly one of the most important conversations I've ever had the privilege of having. So I hope you folks enjoy it. I hope you feel like you better understand where the games industry is in this moment. And after listening, I hope you feel the urge to seek out more information about this topic. As always, remember to support our resident musician at ZWBuckley.com. Share the podcast on Twitter if you dig it. And let us know your thoughts. Here's the show. Emma Kenema, it's an honor to have you here today. Uh, I feel feel like we're going to talk about a lot of important things that uh, you know are going to make a big difference in people's lives. But how are you doing on this day? Um, I'm great. Just up and early uh, on a Saturday yeah. afternoon. <laughs> you might be the you might be the first game industry worker of any stripe I've met who's like, yeah, let's do an interview before nine a.m. <laughs> yeah, um, definitely. I mean, every studio I've ever worked at starts at like ten or eleven, and uh, I'm I'm typically an early riser, so it doesn't really work for me. 
well, good on you because, you know, that, that takes strength and a lot of planning. And I can tell that you're you're working on the edges of whatever your day job must be because I, I either get messages from you particularly early or particularly late. So I'm like, she's she's burning that midnight oil. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Let's talk about your background before we jump into Game Workers Unite. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your background in as much as we can without giving too much identifying information away. Uh, what was your path to and through game development? Where where did your involvement in game dev start? Sure. So, I mean, I guess it kind of starts all the, all the way back in uh, high school. I was doing a fair amount of 3D and pixel art um, for various games online, and I was um, involved in, like, a lot of, like... <laughs> like fan MMORPG projects and things. Heck yeah. Um, so I, I was always kind of like dabbling in and around it, although I didn't consider it game development at that point. Like I just thought it was this random kind of hobby I'd fallen into. Um, and then I ended up going to film school and then switched into uh, a games program. And so when I came out of that, I kind of had some more comprehensive training and I've been in the industry now for a little while, and uh, yeah, so I don't know, kind of went from hobbyist to studied in, in university, and then, you know, working in the industry. And at, at any point along the way, I, usually something like Game Workers Unite is born out of, at, at least at first it's born out of a personal experience or a sort of personal connection to the, the issue at large. At any point, did you experience some sort of discrimination or a hardship that a union might have helped to lessen the impact of, at least? Yeah, I mean, oh, gosh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, to put it short, yes. Um, I've experienced everything ranging from um, crunch and gender discrimination to, um, you know, I've experienced a couple layoffs already, and I'm fairly young for the industry, um, and yeah, I've already experienced that as well, and we had no severance, no um, protections or heads up or anything um, when those layoffs happened uh, at two of my previous studios, and a union could have helped uh, at least soften the blow on those kinds of things, if not prevented them. So what is Game Workers Unite, and, and what does this organization do? Yeah, sure. So... Um, Game Workers Unite is an international labor organization and movement um, that's dedicated to unionizing the games industry. Um, and the way we do that is by, um, you know, doing a lot of kind of like educational work around, uh, uh, you know, the industry, you know, talking about labor conditions and talking about how um, unionization and collective action can help solve a lot of the, uh, the structural issues that we have in the games industry. Um, and then we also uh, do that work by uh, helping build local small communities um, in, in cities and uh, nations around the world. Um, we have like 25 plus local and national chapters, some of which have now moved on to being national unions. Um, and through those uh, kind of local smaller chapters, um, we do a lot of like organizer training and building up the skills of workers and teaching them the, their rights and things um, and helping to organize directly in people's local studios and communities um, because that's ultimately where change always comes from. It's always from the bottom up and from mm -hmm. uh, on the local scale, not like a top down kind of situation. And, and speaking of like a top down or uh, kind of a local grassroots scale, how, how exactly is GWU 
uh, structure? You know, do, do you report to someone or is it kind of a more uh, uh, collective kind of group of people talking at, at once? How how do you kind of uh, organize yourselves? Sure. Um, I mean, to put it broadly, um, it's it's a fairly horizontal group. There's not a lot of like in terms of like hierarchical structure, but there definitely is structure because um I think a lot of us have found both in in this work with Game Workers Unite and in prior groups and things, it's it's really hard to get work done um, without some level of structure and assigning kind of roles and responsibilities to people. So um, uh, we tend to kind of just let everyone be fairly autonomous in terms of the local chapters um, and that in terms of the international level that we have kind of their back. Um, we're there to provide some uh, more advice and, and experience and help coordinate people between uh, different kind of regions and things. But um, for the most part, the local chapters make their own decisions on what they want to do, what kind of issues they want to tackle, um, how they want to go about organizing in their communities. Um, and then on the international level, we kind of have these three um, uh, committees, as it were, um, that handle um, like community issues. So like internal kind of community management and helping um, accept people to the group and onboard them and have like a, a good social on-ramp into the, into the, into the group and mm-hmm. helping them get work done. We have uh, a communications committee, which kind of handles things like press and messaging and writing literature and providing like educational resources to workers. And then we also have an organizing committee, um, which does everything, uh, from, you know, interfacing with external organizations and, and schools and labor orgs and things. Um, all the way to providing organizer training and like actually advising on um, campaigns directly in specific workplaces. So if I kind of read you correctly, it seems like GWU broadly is is there to kind of keep the the conversation and the resources flowing while the smaller chapters are the ones working out individual like contracts or statements or or goals and intentions for that specific like little subsector of the game industry workers who work in that area, right? Yeah, that seems like a pretty good way to put it. Um, and, And I think the international helps kind of maintain a level of solidarity and collaboration that would otherwise be really hard to do if everyone was just totally atomized and put into their kind of like isolated groups. Um, It's really important to us to have an international focus always. Um, A lot of people tend to have the impression that Game Workers Unite is U.S.-based or primarily out of the U.S., but our membership is genuinely like dispersed all over the world. Um, and we have a massive amount of people in Europe and Asia and South America and things who, um, do just wonderful work with us. And, um, and yeah, I, I wouldn't want to see their work erased and the impact they're having erased by, you know, just seeing it as a, a U.S. org because it's not. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the, the same problems that impact the U.S. impact places like the U.K. and, and Asia, uh, and, and other, uh, less, uh, uh, I guess for lack of a better word, kind of prominent countries in the games industry. But uh, so I suppose if there's one thing I've learned as a journalist who is supposed to kind of cover this world-spanning industry, it's that it's hard to find people on smaller scales unless you already know where to look. So GWU has been really adamant about pushing for that unionization at local levels. Uh, I, I are, are there other challenges or advantages? Like, what are the advantages to that kind of strategy? Uh, 
because it seems like the GWU broadly is really good at keeping the conversation going. And we'll kind of jump into the, the genesis of GWU here in a second. But uh, how do you how do you keep a smaller organization going when they meet a brick wall in the form of their employers being obstinate? Um, interesting. Okay, so, I mean, to tackle the first part, um, I just want to kind of clarify for folks who aren't maybe super familiar with, like, labor history and, and kind of labor organizing in general, unionization always happens on the local level first. Um, it's mm-hmm. always about just uh, you and your coworkers um, standing together in solidarity and helping um, empower and support all your fellow workers in your workplace. Um, and then over time, if many studios and shops or companies, whatever the case may be, in your industry become unionized, then you can get, you know, people coming together for regional and national and sometimes international labor unions that help coordinate on a higher level. But um, always, always, always unionization happens locally in individual shops and studios. I just wanted to clarify that for folks. And then would you mind repeating your second question or the second part? I suppose, I suppose like... I, I can understand where GWU uh, succeeds when it comes to kind of keeping a public conversation going and, mm, and keeping gotcha. keeping unionization in, in the public eye. But when a smaller uh, pro-union force kind of comes up against a, a brick wall in the form of their employers, you know, pushing back, uh, how do you support that or what does that smaller chapter do to support themselves? Sure. Yeah, great question. Um, I mean, that's ultimately what what one of the main kind of benefits of having the international is kind of like a consistent voice for labor and always um, being willing to tackle issues of the day. Um, it kind of opens up the conversation and opens up a platform um, for other workers to use and launch off of um, when necessary. Um, and our internal community as well is like a huge source of support for people um, in in various you know situations. Um, so. I mean, we're a very young organization, ultimately, just under a year old. Um, But already, I mean, we've had uh, a a lot of success in supporting fellow workers, um, whether whether like privately or publicly. Um, Oftentimes, you know, people will be facing a certain situation in their workplace and then, you know, they might post about it or something in an internal communication channel and um, people provide advice and support and sometimes people pass around you know fundraiser links and things for um workers on strike or just whatever um it it it, it's not it doesn't it's not just reduced to um you know uh pr support say but um there's a lot of tangible like direct support um when people need it and request it and and yeah so like i think of something like um Earlier in 2018, um, some French game workers at Eugene Systems um, went out on strike. And unfortunately, um, the international community of game developers and players didn't really have their back um, for a few reasons. Um, I mean, for one, Game Workers Unite didn't exist at that point. Um, There was no, like, kind of international group of game workers already, like, thinking about uh, labor conditions and supporting our fellow workers. And... If we had been around, we could have had that community advocating in our local spaces to help, you know, fund a strike uh, pool and, um, you know, provide resources or, like, uh, coordinate in terms of, like, various ways to support the workers who are on strike. And and that's an example of how um, 
it's really important to to have that conversation and that community building uh, happening in the games industry. Um, because if another Eugene Systems similar kind of strike happens somewhere, it doesn't matter how um, isolated and weak the workers feel. If they have the backing and support of their fellow workers from around the world, they can do so much more um, with everyone's support. So I think the conversation and the direct organizing on the ground level both of those things are really important and they go hand in hand. It, it does seem like in many ways a, a battle of oxygen. You know, uh, do you do you focus on getting a, a bigger tank of oxygen, i.e., you know, support from a broader coalition? Or do you, you know, try to uh, use what little oxygen you have to, to push uh, for what you can at that point, which seems to be like you said in that case, uh, it didn't turn out as well as it should have. So and speaking of kind of the, the oxygen of of keeping this conversation going and alive and, and thriving towards a, a, an equitable solution. Uh, so almost a year ago now, we saw Game Workers Unite kind of get a boost in visibility thanks to a, a really tense game developers conference, the, the 2018 Game Developers Conference, particularly thanks to an IGDA, that's International Game Developers Association for anyone who doesn't know, uh, an IGDA roundtable on unionization with IGDA uh, executive director Jen McLean and a few others. Uh, Jen McLean was the moderator of that conversation, and and they brought up a, a number of people to to talk about uh, their experiences with unionization and what their thoughts were. And that seems to be the lightning point for where Game Workers Unite really began to flourish. You had about like 2,000 Twitter followers prior to that because the conversation was clearly happening. That's why there was a I, that's why there was a roundtable to begin with. But the uh, you, you look back at reports of that roundtable and there was a clear tension between uh, people like Jen McLean and some others on that round table and people who were speaking and saying, you know, these, these were my experiences. I, I feel really strongly that uh, I, we should be pro-union and push for more unionization and collective workforce powers. And then some people on the opposite side of that conversation kind of, I wouldn't say poo-pooing the idea, but like throwing some mud on it and saying like, oh, well, would that work? And those are valid questions to have. But I'm curious to ask what did you feel was the impact of that kind of lightning point and and what did it serve sure um actually first i would just want to actually push back a little bit on how okay. you described the round table um act, i mean i was there um that day to be fair, and... I, I was not so <laughs> I, I, sure. will, I will admit that yeah no and and that's totally great um and um i think sometimes the conversation and reports that have come out of that round table um aren't entirely accurate so it's it's totally okay um that round table hosted by the igda um in the room there was zero critical sentiment shared about unionization um no one pushed back that we need to start solving these problems in the games industry um nobody spoke up against you know, workers trying to uh, mm -hmm. unionize and, and get together to actually improve their conditions in a material way, um, except for the host of the roundtable, which was Jen McLean, as you mentioned, the executive director of the IGDA. Um, she was the only voice in the room um, really saying any of those kinds of sentiments, which made it feel really quite strange, um, like she wasn't really reading the room right. Um, 
because the, the the round table was kind of framed as this pros and cons. Let's have a discussion about what could go wrong, what could go right. Um, and nobody in the room seemed interested in talking about, you know, any cons, um, even though people mentioned, you know, there are caveats and like we have to do this right and make sure we're focused on democratic rank and file unionization and stuff. Um, but uh, the only voice of quote unquote opposition, perhaps, um, was Jen McLean actually herself, who kept kind of kind of, I don't know, digging her feet in and didn't want to really have a conversation with us, which was interesting. One of one of the the quotes I'm seeing, at least on a Polygon story from around that time, is uh, there was uh, a person who said, I have a lot of uh, first generation students and students of color, and I would like to get them fair shots when they're looking for jobs. Other unions I've been a part of, there have been people joining even before they get into the job uh, itself. And then McLean responded, so you're saying that unions are going to vet potential hires for game studios, uh, which uh, uh, the person who originally was speaking said that they're not comfortable with. Uh, but McLean honed in on the suggestion that unions, this is Polygon saying this is, but she honed in on the suggestion that unions take an active role in the hiring process, setting off the pro-union crowd in the process. Uh, did, did you have thoughts about that or were there like other comments that kind of really uh, stuck out to you? Um, sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's an example of one where I feel like someone was having or bringing up a pretty valid point and then she wanted to kind of dig in on this one thing that she thought was a criticism and that felt like the tenor of the whole conversation. And, and frankly, what happened in that room isn't terribly important. It was, it was a moment where, you know, several hundred game workers were in a room together realizing all at the same time that while there'd be detractors, at least when you're talking just amongst game developers, the numbers are very high and people are quite supportive of this issue. And regardless of whether or not someone supports unionization, pretty much everyone can admit that things are messed up in the industry, that um, we have absolutely no leverage or power in helping change the industry. And that alone is not fair. Um, and so uh, I think that roundtable was a great opportunity to really expand the conversation out from, you know, behind closed doors where, um, you know, previously a lot of these conversations around games labor and um, trying to find solutions and ways forward often happened, you know, privately amongst friends or, or co-workers, um, but certainly never in a public realm. And I think after that roundtable, we caught a lot of press um, for, you know, having such a packed room and such an active conversation about it happened um, after that. Um, and I think it really just kind of cracked open this taboo subject for the industry. And that alone is really important because it'll, it, it frees people up to really start thinking critically and openly about these issues, um, whether or not, you know, how they land or if they're supportive for unionization or what kind of unionization they want or what path they want to it. Um, it makes the conversation much more mature, much more developed. And when people are openly grappling with these subjects, um, you're going to find better and better solutions and ideas coming from uh, unexpected places. And Jen McLean isn't the president of video games by any stretch. She, <laughs> yeah. uh, but but she is one of the more visible uh, forces in, in what is ostensibly a, a uh, pro-developer kind of organization, uh, even though the IGDA has its own myriad flaws. Uh, do, do you anticipate the conversation to 
change uh, this upcoming GDC. We're recording this on February 23rd, but it'll only be a, a couple of weeks, uh, a few weeks really, until uh, GDC 2019. Do you think the conversation is gonna uh, has shifted in your favor at this point? Do you think Jen McLean might be singing a, a different tune? Um. So I mean, <laughs> the conversation has definitely shifted. Um. I mean. Even now, just like a year later, um, when layoffs happen, the conversation is not just how do we support these workers and like get them jobs. And Mm -hmm. um, it's just not it's it's not just reported, you know, how many people um, were lost in the layoffs. But the conversation also now comes with kind of that added conversation of like, what caused this? How did management lead up to this? What were the Mm -hmm. labor conditions leading up to this? Like what? What are the tangible impacts on workers, both still in the studio and now um, not with the studio? So the conversation has absolutely changed, and it has this focus on uh, labor and labor conditions, right? Um, And then regarding Jen McLean and things, I mean, ultimately, uh, I mean, when it comes to unionization and to improving the lives of, of game workers, Jen McLean's opinions are frankly irrelevant and so are the opinions of the IGDA um because it doesn't involve them um it involves game workers directly and their bosses um and frankly nobody else um Mm -hmm. unionization can only and will only come from game workers themselves and it and the opinions of someone like a Jen McLean are, are, are frankly irrelevant to the conversation. And that's not me to me trying to be dismissive or, or, or no. diminutive of her. It's just, that's not the nature of things. Um, unionization and collective action happens as an exchange between workers and their employers. And that's the entire nature of the relationship. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, it adds a flavor to the, the larger industry conversation, knowing how the IGDA sides on a kind of international level, although mm-hmm. many of their local chapters are, um, you know, hosting all kinds of like pro-union workshops and hosting these conversations to continue to like, you know, uh, develop the conversation for game workers. Um, but ultimately, it, it their involvement is doesn't quite really um, have a tangible impact. And it's not necessary in that way, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, yeah, that does. So let's let's talk a little bit about it, it, it. You're right. It does seem like to kind of put in a in a shoddy metaphor I've just come up with. Uh, it seems like the conversation has switched from the symptoms to the cause of yep. of this malady in the game industry. Uh, we're, we're still talking, of course, about layoffs and crunch, and, and we will get to that, believe me. Uh, but the conversation seems to be shifting to yes. Uh, why like like any other sector that is in a fight for uh, a collective workforce power why have we just been ignoring the problems that that our our workforce is not treated even remotely similar to how its power holders are or they or the power holders are uh uh for lack of a better word hoarding power and not cultivating that among their workforce uh, and creating a, a more equal kind of uh, workplace. So talk to me a little bit about what are the causes as opposed to the symptoms of, of this ongoing problem? Yeah, um, I think you really hit the nail on the head that um, it's been really important to identify that the conversation is shifting less from individual events and circumstances to 
um, overall uh, systems and kind of dynamics at play in the industry and in our in our in our workplaces. That's really essential. Um, and this is a slight tangent. I apologize, but no, go um, for it. Tangents it, are what podcasts are about. <laughs> fair. Um, something I I often find myself explaining to new organizers is that. Um, I mean, the role of an organizer is many things, but um, more than anything, it's about really actively listening to the concerns of your fellow workers and um, asking open-ended questions to find out what problems are facing them. And they might say um, all these kinds of different symptoms or kind of surface level, like individual issues at play in the workplace. But the job of the organizer is to to hear those symptoms that they're providing and kind of Mm -hmm. synthesize them and realize a lot of these are sourcing back to the same thing. They might be coming from like kind of core larger issues that are impacting more and more people um, and learning to see the workplace and in terms of organizing on the international level, the the systems of the, of the international games industry, what are the dynamics at play and what are the causes? So learning to think in a systematic way, th- thinking about root causes and not just addressing the surface level, right? Um, we can keep sharing job posts and job boards and things mm-hmm. um, after every cycle of layoffs, but they keep that always happening. Happens, yeah. It's so, a band-aid. So yeah. It, it, that seems like the band-aid. Like we're, we're all like despondent, like, oh, Naughty Dog is hiring. Capcom is hiring. Yeah. You guys are having problems, but that's not addressing the actual problem. And it's important to do that work as well. Like you don't want to just be like, well, we have to heal the wound and we can't just put dressing on it. It's like, well, sometimes you also need to dress the wound. Um, and, you know, there's been a lot of like job board sharing and support mm-hmm. happening in the wake of layoffs within our internal community as well. Um, but it, you have to look at the systematic causes if you're going to change anything. So to answer your question, um, I mean, a lot of the problems kind of boil down to often um, that the job of the kind of management and executive classes in many of our studios are inherently kind of at odds with some of the needs and interests of, of the workers in those studios. Um, I mean, so ultimately if you take a large, like publicly traded shareholder company, like Activision Blizzard, just for an example, um, Mm. the interest of the CEO is not actually to create, um, a long-term stable, high quality company. The actual, like, charter in charge of that position, the CEO, is to create uh, profits and increased value for the shareholders. Um, that's not a conspiracy theory or anything. That's basic like public business 101. Um, mm-hmm. The job of the C-class is to create profits for the shareholders. So what that means is that profit and that extra value for the shareholders often prioritizes short-term growth, short-term like bumps in value of the stock, um, things like that. And so, um, and I mean, this is open information and, and it was discussed on the public, um, shareholder call, um, for Activision Blizzard recently where, um, they, they led off with it. (laughs) Yeah. They were talking about how, um, Bobby Kotick mentioned, you know, we did it again, boys. Um, we had record revenue, um, this year and it was a massive success, right? Um, but we weren't successful enough. And so um, the stock had kind of stagnated a little bit. So we laid off 800 workers to bump, you know, uh, the stock value 9%, right? You drop off 8% of your workforce, that signifies confidence um, in the company to the shareholders who then um, essentially bump the value of the stock. Um, 
because that indicates that the CEO is prioritizing um, the value given to shareholders over the value and respect given to workers. And that's just the inherent dynamic. So that was kind of like a, a, a larger and broader way of explaining your thing, um, your question about root causes. But I think we really have to look at these deeper systematic uh, relationships at play at work. And often the, the, the wants of an employer is to um, extract as much profit and value out of our labor as possible. Um, and uh, the worker just wants to do their work with the highest level of quality and have a, a stable job and things. And sometimes those interests do not align. And I would say most of the time those interests do not align. Um, and so understanding that dynamic is essential in approaching the workplace and figuring out how to organize it and, and solve some of these causes. Um, yeah. And it, and it seems like, you know, we're, it, it would be monumentally difficult to change how a massive video game company like Activision Blizzard or EA or Capcom uh, makes that money because they, they depend on an investor class, a, a C-suite class to, to keep that going. But, the you you couldn't you couldn't reformat that unless it like took a, a decade or more. So the answer has to be worker power, uh, less so reforming the power at the top. Uh, although of course reforming the power at the top is is a part of this ongoing discussion. You know how do the people at the top treat the people at the middle and the bottom? Uh, did like does that make any sense? Uh, yeah, it does. Although actually, I would just want to highlight something. Um often kind of colloquially we refer to as um you know shareholders as investors that's a common mm -hmm. term like when people say that they're buying stock in a company they're investing in the company but with publicly traded companies um that money isn't actually a, a revenue source for the company they are not actually funding the company um after the initial public buyout option um when a company transitions to a public trading holding company um after that point investors are not bringing new cash flow into a company. So in that way, hmm. the shareholders actually are not investors. They are not enabling the growth of the company. They're, if anything, just um, like holders on extracting profit from the, the work what, that we do. What are they enabling? Yeah, in that, in that case. <laughs> what they're doing is they are um, taking cash that they already have and wealth they already have, and then claiming a stake on the kind of collective ownership of amongst the shareholders for the control of the corporation. It's not about um, cash flow, actually. Um, and then the C-suite, the CEO and the CFO and CCO and those kinds of folks, um, they just represent the interests of the board of directors and the shareholders. Um, but um, yeah, sorry, that was a little bit of tangent, but um, I think it's important to, to note that that terminology of investor because after the initial kind of public option for the um, buying shareholder like stake um, that's actually not terribly accurate it's interesting you say all that and, and thank you for for kind of explaining that I, uh, I I one of my various freelance jobs is working for a website called gamedaily.biz so I've interviewed uh, the managing editor Amanda Farrow uh, and I've and I've really enjoyed I, I started off as typically as any other games media writer you know working for IGN News or uh, PC Gamer and a lot of like enthusiast press, but getting to work for a business-focused site 
uh, has been really eye-opening, and and I think that a lot of enthusiast press still might not, unless they consult a, a professional they have on call, they might not understand what those kind of symbiotic relationships between uh, shareholders and C-suites and mm-hmm. the workers are. That, so that's that's really interesting. Thank you for that. Yeah, and it, I mean, most people don't have that understanding unless you've done, you know, some basic like business 101 or, or what have you. Um, and so I think it's important to, while also talking about labor conditions, also um, clarify and lay out the ground on which these labor conditions play out and our organizing mm-hmm. plays out because it's important to understand those dynamics. So let's let's talk about some of the symptoms. Uh, this kind of reads off like a uh, uh, the list of Arya's targets from Game of Thrones, but Capcom Vancouver, Telltale Games, Disney Canada, Treon Worlds, Bandai Namco Vancouver, Jam City, uh, Activision Blizzard, Arena Nets, and Fire Monkeys, which is otherwise known as EA's Australia branch, or at least one of them. Uh, layoffs and crunch uh that list i just read that was more about layoffs and that you if you combine that whole list you're probably talking maybe around 3000 people maybe 2500 but that is a shit ton of people to lose their jobs all in the last 4 5 months if that yeah uh and and it seems like the my only experience with something like this is as a games media person i i am familiar enough with bloat and and with a a website having to shut down because they they got some investor money and kind of tried to build something up it did not land they didn't throw the right spaghetti at the wall and they ha- and the investor had to make their money back by you know selling off uh, uh assets or or the brand or whatever the big push right now is just general unionization but that wouldn't necessarily a, a lot of people i think even in pro union forces admit that uh, unions wouldn't necessarily stave off layoffs at big companies like activision blizzard or telltale or whatnot but in a in a less extortionist world how do unions help workers who are caught up in such unfortunate circumstances yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, to be clear, unionization is not a magic pill for all of our problems. It's not a magic wand that yeah. now there are no layoffs. Now all companies are successful. <laughs> uh, now every game is a massive success. Everyone gets success. a Battle Royale game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's totally fair to talk about those like grounded realities. Um, that being said... Um, uh, I mean, oh gosh, I mean, a unionized workforce that, you know, has their collective solidarity and support um, set up and like actually making grounds in the workplace, um, they can do so many things to help with layoffs, whether it's just um, helping uh, a layoff uh, be a softer blow for workers. Um, uh, you, can, I mean, unions uh, historically have done all sorts of things around layoffs and, and big cuts in employment around um, increase, having and or increasing um, the severance provided uh, to workers being laid off, um, requiring a kind of like, you know, a, a period of heads up uh, for workers so that you don't just show up to work and then find out you're not making rent this week. Um, mm-hmm. That's actually happened to me before um, where, oh my. yeah, it's just any other Tuesday you come into work and it turns out now I'm unemployed and maybe soon to be out of my house. Um that kind of stuff happens all the time. And so having a heads up means people can start job searching. They can start reaching out to their friends and, and prior coworkers and finding that safety net as much as possible. Um, you can do all sorts of things around layoffs, even just making it 
um, a harder process to execute for executives means a layoff um, maybe isn't the best option. Uh, and uh, it can be too much of a drain on a company to do a layoff if um, the seventh package that's been negotiated is good enough and if they have to jump through all these hoops to do it um so like a company like activision blizzard that is doing it just to boost stock value price and create more profit for the shareholders they'd have to think twice and really reevaluate um you know that option because um if they actually had to pay people well and provide them with a safety net as they laid them off um they might choose other options um that are more stable and more about um, keeping people on and finding secure um, long-term positions for people. Do you um, uh, do you do you think that companies in that instance would? I it seems like a lot of time you hear about a company ramping up production. They'll they'll get you mm. know two hundred million uh, investor money, and then they'll ramp up production for a particular project uh, or expand their operation if they've been doing like mid-tier games, and then like they're you know like CD Projekt Red or or uh, 4A games, you know, they're going from like these mid-tier projects to AAA all the way, uh, and then after, n- not, I don't think these companies, those companies specifically have done anything, uh, but you hear about a company like expanding and then shrinking their workforce right after a game yeah. comes out and they need to cut back on on their losses. Uh, do you think that companies would, in that case, like be- perhaps begin to hire more conservatively? Um, yeah, more conservatively, more st- uh, stably, right? With Because yeah. when management knows that they can just hire on a ton of people and then whether or not the game is successful, lay them all off after the project is done, um, they don't have to take into consideration the lives of those workers affected by those kinds of decisions and those reckless, risky decisions oftentimes. Um, so if there's more protections put in place for workers... Um, management will be less likely to um, have those kinds of massive layoffs and um, do them without repercussion or remorse, really. Um, And yeah, so unionization is not a perfect solution, but it can certainly add a cushion. um, And not all layoffs can be prevented, certainly. Um, Sometimes companies just go under. Sometimes, you know, you just haven't been turning a profit for long enough. But unionization can help bring a level of stability and professionalization to the workforce in a studio in a way that is really difficult to have otherwise. Um, and, and among that can be, um, making sure that the kind of cash flow of a company is being used responsibly. So instead of paying bloated, um, executive salaries, actually making sure that we can hire people for the, the, for a stable amount of time, ensuring we don't have to overwork our workers and actually paying to have a proper, um, fully fleshed out production plan instead of a rushed one that may cause the game to fail or have a lower quality bar and be a riskier project ultimately for the studio. In, in, in some ways, it seems like another parallel between like my experience as games media and, and the games industry is, there's there's a very fine line and i and i don't doubt that some companies would try it i know some companies probably try it they'll they'll ask younger workers who are less burnt out you know hey yeah. will will you work for pennies on the dollar uh or or will you work for like you know experience and uh, uh that's that's exploitation you know pay, pay me um yeah no, you're highlighting a, a, a major issue in the industry, which is like the issue of passion. Um, I think 
the vast majority of game workers, myself inclu included, <clears throat> bring a, a really high level of passion for the work. Um, I mean, we most of us have grown up playing video games, we're in love with the medium, and we just want to be a part of the industry. But the problem is we have to make sure that at the same time, we're not making ourselves extremely vulnerable to exploitation. Um, because managers and employers are really want to um, use the language of passion, use the language of family in the workplace, and use that to guilt people or even just create kind of like a cultural a culture of work in the workplace where people are driven to overwork themselves, um, often at the expense of the quality of the game as well. Um, and yeah, that 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 passion question is really a big messy one like it's important for us to have that passion and to let it fuel our creative work but also not make that such a vulnerability when it comes to how we interact with management um it, it, it might be a harsh metaphor but it, it can sometimes feel like the people who jump at the chance to do that professional work for free or for you know quote-unquote experience it's the video game industry equivalent of like a scab uh uh, that might be a little harsh in ascribing a, a certain ill will to those people who are just doing what they, they feel is best for their own careers. But it, it is the same sort of detrimental force of like, if you devalue your work, that devalues all of our work, right? Yeah, I wouldn't use the term scab in that circumstance, but um, absolutely. I mean, sometimes people genuinely have to just take what they can get. Um, I mean, I did mm -hmm. that early in my uh, career. My first position was an unpaid internship where I was doing a full-time job as essentially a, a production coordinator, which mm -hmm. is, was ridiculous um, that I was doing that wow. unpaid. Probably and, in a major city. <laughs> yeah, in, in Southern California, where it's incredibly expensive and um, it was so unsustainable and um, that often excludes a lot of people of marginalization or lower mm -hmm. income. And it means... We're cutting off so many wonderful, talented people from our industry. Um, by the same time, to have a, a career at all, I had to do that thing. And I had to, mm. you know, um, accept those kind of horrible conditions. And so it, it is a real problem facing a lot of younger workers or less experienced workers um, new to the industry. But um, the point is, once we get in, not just accepting the fact that, oh, well, that's the way it is. And now all these new younger people coming up behind me have to also go through that process. We should be improving the industry as we grow in it, as we mature into senior workers in the industry. We should be fighting to make sure that for the people who come up next, they have a better situation and they have a better um, mm -hmm. voice in the workplace. Um, and I think this really relates back to something um, my friend... Um, Emily uh, Buck, who uh, worked worked at Telltale up until the layoffs, um, she was once describing to me um, how she felt like because the workplace at Telltale had no, like there was no worker power in that place. It was so do dominated by executives and management. Um, it, it it created essentially a stagnation in the company, um, creatively and in terms of the risk of the products and and making kind of creative risks, right? Um, you you did see them glom onto a lot of like established IPs and yeah. people people even in like general enthusiast press noted like yeah Telltale doesn't seem like they've made any investment in like updating the tools that they use to make games so like all mm. these games uh, Walking Dead onward you know start to feel uh, uh, jankier and jankier and you could you could start to feel that that anxiety creeping through the walls of each game yeah and often that was the management. Um, 
being, you know, a little foolhardy and thinking they could just chase the same product over and over and keep making the same return on that, uh, on that work. And that's just not how it works. Right. And, and it's really frustrating for the friends that I know who were at Telltale, um, up until the end, especially, um, people were in there fighting to change that people, mm-hmm. you know, designers and, and writers and, uh, engineers all wanted to, you know, start exploring new, uh, designs and, and new stories to tell, um, a lot of original IP ideas. And, um, there was a big push to, um, you know, have a new version of the engine and really like expand into the future to create that stable footing uh, for the future of that company. But all of those attempts were, you know, squashed by management. And what you have is like people too focused on the short term, um, kind of profits of the company dictating to the rest of the company and squashing any, um, kind of burgeoning creative solutions and, and improvements to the work that the company was putting out. And so, um, my friend Emily was talking about how if they had been unionized, if they had actual democratic, um, structures and powers in the workplace for workers to really have some have their hand on the wheel as it were um Mm. some of those things could have been avoided and who knows maybe the layoffs could have been avoided the end of the company could have been avoided possibly if the workers had been allowed to actually just do the highest quality work that they had in to to give and and put their best ideas and foot forward um if there had been that democratic focus on what the workers think is right and uh, making sure the the creativity of the studio was still alive. Um, mm-hmm. People often talk about how, you know, well, th- you know, innovation and creativity, it comes from companies because companies are focused on, you know, doing the most innovative work. But what what what's so clear about Telltale is they were so focused um, as a management class on making that short term profit that they ground the creativity of their workers to a halt. And, um, ultimately that's often where the, a lot of people both inside and outside of the company put the blame, uh, in terms of where the collapse kind of inevitably came from because they saw diminishing returns on their, their work every year. You, you saw it as soon as, uh, even as soon as like the end of Walking Dead season one, where, uh, the writer whose name escapes me, but he went on to co-found, uh, 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 Firewatch, the Firewatch studio. Yeah, Campo Santos. Yeah, Campo Santo. Yeah, uh, left left a company like that where he he could have literally had a job just writing game stories all day for something that he could control, and uh, you you saw it as early as that. Yeah, uh, let I'm going to throw a few questions here before we kind of begin to wrap up. And uh, I think this will be like one of the more contentious ones, but I don't have any interest in in, you know, making it a, a unnecessarily contentious one. Let's talk about the hashtag fire Bobby Kodak campaign. Uh, this obviously began in the wake of the Activision Blizzard layoffs where Kodak, like you said, praised the company for reaching record profits. We did it again, boys. Uh, but nonetheless, they said, we have we didn't reach our, our personal expectations, uh, so we have to let go of uh, approximately 775 people. Kodak, by most accounts, makes something like 300 times the median salary uh, at Activision Blizzard. And 
he is in a way like partially responsible for games as a service becoming more popularized. Certainly not the only executive pushing that dream, but uh, one of the big ones for sure. And those kinds of teams have been the poster childs for uh, like that unnecessary bloat. And to be clear, I have like no love for the man. I think he's been generally a, a, a moderate to negative influence on the industry. Tell me, why why did Game Workers Unite start such a sort of social media campaign? And what did GWU, or what does GWU hope to kind of accomplish from something like that? Yeah, sure. Great question. Um, so, I mean, uh, actually, to be clear, um, the hashtag Firebobby Kotick um, kind of social media campaign and uh, the petition that was released, um, which is now currently somewhere around 7,000 signatures in support, um, to call for the removal of Bobby Kotick as CEO of Activision Blizzard for all the things you just said. Um, mm. That was actually, um, the idea came from and was developed by Activision Blizzard workers. Um, they decided to use the platform of Game Workers Unite because we have an audience, we have the ear of the press, um, and we have some visibility. And there's also the protection of having them safely behind kind of our um, kind of like wall of anonymity i guess you could put it mm-hmm. um and so this petition and this call to remove bobby Kotick comes directly from activision blizzard workers um some who were affected by the layoffs some who are still in the company in various studios um and so uh yeah there's been a lot of coverage that has said like game workers unite calls for it i understand where that confusion comes from but the okay. workers themselves are calling for it because they see that it is completely absurd um, to have a yeah a CEO who makes thirty million dollars a year plus um, and you know boasting about record revenue to his shareholders and then in the same breath being like but also we're going to cut eight hundred workers um, so that we can bump our stock value by nine percent. So I I am super curious like I I orig- I was the original reporter for that for GameDaily.biz. Uh, and my editors and I, uh, Amanda Farrow and, and Mike Futter, uh, we, we both took our time kind of jumping on that story because we wanted to make sure it was fair and, you know, as dry journalistically as it could be. Uh, but I, I personally did not see anything that uh, indicated this was Activision Blizzard employees. Did you guys do that intentionally, kind of keeping that under wraps? Uh, or was that just like a, a mistake? or Because that, that does kind of change the perception of why GWU started promoting something like that. Yeah, that's fair. I think that was a failure in many ways on our part, um, not thinking beforehand about um, who it would seem was calling for this. Um, and, and don't get me wrong, um, uh, Game Workers Unite also supports this effort because mm-hmm. the man doesn't deserve to be you know, in charge of that company. But... Um, uh, yeah, I mean, that certainly I think was a failure on our part in terms of messaging that aspect of it. Um, that being said, um, I think we mostly cite that, that sourcing from, uh, Activision Blizzard employees, um, in the language of the petition itself and in the language of, I think, our initial tweets about it, um, saying, um, something along the lines of like, we, the, um, the workers of Activision Blizzard and their friends, um, you know, uh, are calling for the removal of Bobby Kotick, blah, blah, blah. Um, but yeah, it, it, it has gotten kind of lost in the conversation. Um, so that, that, 
yeah, I think it's important to kind of clarify that because it, it's really important to note that these are the the workers of Activision Blizzard standing up for themselves with mm-hmm. the support of like our collective community and voice. Again, that kind of uh, smaller level being supported by the broader coalition. Absolutely. Oh, I was just going to uh, answer your second part on. Um, so what are what's the kind of like intention and what are the, some of the things we're expecting to come of this? Um, you know, uh, a lot of people have I've seen recently talking about, you know, what exactly is the point? Like, even if Bobby Kotick is removed, like they're just going to put some other like wealthy CEO in his place. And, it's a hydra. Yeah. Yeah, it's a hydra of sorts. And I would say, yep, you're right. Um, and just like we said earlier in this conversation, we can't just be thinking about symptoms. We have to be thinking about the system. Um, but so what I would encourage people to think about are all of the many myriad ways in which this petition has rippled out and had multiple positive effects. Um, so even if we just say, um, even if Bobby Kotick doesn't end up being removed or hasn't, you know, stepped down or what have you, whether or not the petition is successful in that way, um, it has had many tangible good things happen. One, um, it's been a source of like, it's been a platform to agitate and educate workers on. Um, Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's provided an opportunity to have these bigger discussions about the nature of sea levels and about the nature of the management class in the games industry. Um, We wouldn't be having this conversation right now um, discussing all these things and talking about those deeper systemic problems in the industry and helping elucidate that nature um, if this petition um, hadn't been put out, right? Mm. Um, So even the idea that this is just a surface level petition, which yes, petitions are, and they're inherently kind of a toothless form of, you know, organizing but it has provided this massive conversation. It's also, you know, built solidarity among player communities and the game developer community. Um, there's been a huge outpouring of support from player communities um, of Activision Blizzard games and things, um, sharing the message, um, signing the petition in solidarity, and starting to have these conversations in those spaces as well. That's enormously value to spark that conversation and that, and that collaboration between developers and our players. Um, on these kinds of subjects about labor and, you know, uh, the role management and corporations have in uh, the goings-on of the industry, right? Um, And then additionally, um, we've had so many uh, Activision Blizzard employees from all around the world um, getting in touch, um, discovering that, you know, their co-worker um, is actually a a Game Workers Unite organizer or knows Mm -hmm. people in the the group or people just like starting to realize that everyone around them is thinking kind of the same thing Um, and seeing that come to light and um, building that community in a tangible way. That has also been a huge success in terms of what this petition has accomplished. So even if nothing comes of the petition in terms of the formal demand, there has already been a a great um, amount of value generated from it, um, from this seemingly toothless activity. Um, Yeah. I I, I do wonder... uh, when we think of like pro-union stories or like union success stories, of course, so, so much of our, our cultural identity, at least here in the, the United States, uh, I, I, I know less about the UK uh, or Europe abroad, our, our DNA for like success stories involves people out on the streets with picket signs and, and meeting people in person. And I am kind of fascinated like how that might have evolved 
uh, that that sort of person to person organizing and 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 whispering and saying like, oh, you're part of GWU, yeah, let's you know let's let's talk and like see if we can get other people involved with us uh, if we you know work at like some larger company. Uh, how that might have changed in the age of Discord and and private message chats and whatnot, and if there have been any sort of Obviously, everyone's always concerned. You yourself, you know, use a, a pseudonym so you're not blacklisted in the industry. Uh, but I, I would be curious to know uh, how that kind of conversation has changed in the in the digital era. Sure. So, I mean, what I'll say ultimately is that, um, you know, having these kind of online digital tools are nothing more than tools. They're just one more mm-hmm. tool in the tool belt, um, whether that's being able to find people um, of similar stripe um and also concerned about conditions at work and things um, through, you know, Gameworks Unite or just conversations on Twitter or what have you. That's just one more tool. Um, and the entire, <laughs> as someone who has done a lot to um, study um, labor history all the way from its very, like, or, like originations, um, labor movements and labor organizing has always been about in-person communication um, building of trust and solidarity. It's about having one-on-one conversations and finding those emotional cores behind the issues we're all facing. It's about finding collective power together, truly on the shop floor, in our studios, in our workplaces. Um, it always will be in person and real and in the moment and like in the, the spaces that we live and work in, right? Mm-hmm. It has always been and will always be um, so long as we work together. Um it will always be that way, but we have um, tools available to us now that are new, and we have to learn to adapt to those times as well, while not replacing the core of the organizing tool belt, as it were, because um, it's important to have that core of you know in-person relationships and things. But you don't know how to go about doing it sometimes when everyone feels isolated and atomized, and so the internet is a tool where we can find out that you know, um, so-and-so from whatever department turns out they're also thinking the same thing as me. Maybe we should get together, talk about things over coffee, um, and start figuring out how we can go about organizing our workplace. Um, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a dynamic that has happened again and again over the last year. Mm-hmm. I keep seeing, um, workers from the same studio realize, oh, we're both here in this conversation or this discord or this thread or something. Um, we should talk about these issues um, like at work. <laughs> um, we should like really start doing something in person. Um, and I mean, it's just been really heartening to see the kind of Game Workers Unite community serve as a place for people to find their like-minded people who are also concerned about wanting to improve their workplace and their industry. Um, and that's been really invaluable, but the bulk of the work, the 99.9% of organizing work is about being in person, having those tough conversations and Mm -hmm. finding solutions together. So, and, and that, that seems like both inspirational and, and informative in that sense of like, I, I've, I've been part of that where, uh, in a messaging group, I, I see someone with a similar interest in me and like, Hey, you're covering this topic too screw it let's work together and see if we can like do a a dual byline on this kind of uh issue that we feel passionate about i uh i'll toss this one kind of last maybe multi-part question for you before we really wrap up uh gwu has branched out into the uk and elsewhere and along those lines of you know using the internet as a tool 
to to coordinate and learn from each other. You know, what ha what sort of success or uh, problems has GWU found in the UK, and what can we in the US learn from all that work in the UK? The the UK Game Workers Union um, started off um, like many of our local and national chapters um, soon after kind of all our activities at GDC blew up. Um, many people from around the world were like really interested in the work we were doing and wanted to um, uh, be trained up in how to organize, um, find like-minded people in their communities um, in a safe way. And so many people started these local chapters, right? Um, and so the UK chapter was one of the very first that, that kind of came off the ground. And right away, they identified that um, the labor conditions in the UK are very different from the US. They're very different from Brazil. They're very different from, you know, every, mm -hmm. every region, every country has a very different labor context and set of labor laws that they have to work within. And they very quickly realized, we're going to need a national union up front um, to have certain uh, legal protections when we're doing organizing work to uh, we also think it'll help bring a community together once we're visible as a national union and um, both of those things have been correct um, but it can't it can't go alone without true like boots on the ground organizing work essentially kind of like how we were just talking about um, so you can't just have a union on paper and it exists and people join it and that's it um, you have to have that those tough campaigns and, and organizing uh, pushes in individual workplaces and in individual communities. And so a lot of what they've been doing, um, you know, non-publicly is doing that kind of work, training up people on how to be organizers, having these conversations about strategy and um, how to best uh, empower workers in their workplaces. And that's a thing that's been going on everywhere. But um, I think it's really great to, to note that whether it's with the UK union or any of the chapters or, you know, even just the international game workers organization. Um, so much of what we do, 90% of the work we do is completely non-visible to anyone outside of the group. And even sometimes mm. some of the people in the group, because unionization individual campaigns are really quite private. They have sensitive information involved. And so oftentimes it's kind of like a, if you're in the shop, you are on a need to know basis, but, um, you know, you might interface with people to advise and help outside of that context, but um, you don't want that information being kind of shared loosely, right? The vast majority of unionization work happens privately, slowly, cautiously, person to person. It's about building trust networks and solidarity. Um, and so it happens so slowly on a private level and a non-visible level. And, and you know, we, we see constantly now in the last few months here we've seen this onslaught of stories about 800 people lost their job here 200 people lost their job here 250 people lost their job here and it is that old axiom of of uh, a million people is a statistic one is tragedy and it's gonna it's probably gonna rely it's gonna need to rely on stories individual stories of this is how this impacted me oh hey you and i just two people have the same interest in in pro-union uh, collective workforce organizing. Yeah, let's talk about that. And you, you begin to see how this benefits yourself personally, as opposed to uh, blanketing a problem. Yeah. And as those, those layoffs and various events around the industry happen, as these kind of press cycles continue to happen about the industry, um, the entire time, it's important to be consistently day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, 
continuing to do the work of organizing our fellow co-workers and um, the industry in general. You can't just organize around these like flashpoints, as it were. Those can yeah. be helpful and they can help break um, through like plateaus in your organizing campaign. But the problem is if you're not ready for that, if you haven't done your homework and built a foundation when those things come, one, you can't help organize and protect workers when those things happen. You can mm -hmm. only be reactionary. And second, um, you aren't ready to use that as a launching point to really boost your campaign to a new level. Um, so although, you know, typically, you know, I think a lot of people's experience with Game Workers Unite and labor organizing in the industry in general is just kind of like through Twitter or reading, um, you know, games press and things talking about these issues. And it seems like, well, but what are they actually doing? doing right like what what's actually happening like okay they have a union in the uk what does that mean mm -hmm. what it what it means is all of this day by day step by step organizing that no one is paying attention to but if you're involved you see the massive amount of work and labor and dedication and blood sweat and tears put into this effort um and so I mean, frankly, to me, that means we need to do a better job of indicating that stuff and educating our fellow, you know, game developers and players and press about what does it mean to be a labor organizer? Like, what are the skills and trade, like trade tools for an organizer? What does it mean to run a campaign? What does it look like? Um, you know, and helping people understand that it's it's very private all the way until you have like a critical mass and you have to go public and you have to have that initial negotiation or, or confrontation with the management. Um, so a lot of people think it's just, well, everyone just votes. We sign in a union, we sign some cards or something, and then suddenly, boom, we have a union and like flicking a switch, everything's solved, right? But that's never how it goes. Um, no. Never in the whole history of labor organizing throughout the entirety of the world, it has always happened on this private one-to-one -one level. Um, and so I think that indicates to me that we need to be doing a better job of educating the, the, our fellow people in this industry to understand that, that nature and to, to understand the work that's going on. Um, cause it is really, it is really difficult work and it is really tricky work. Um, and I, I think it'd be important to, to have people understand what it really means beyond just, you know, creating a union, whatever that means, you know, whatever that means. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Emma Kinema, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a really enlightening conversation, uh, and I hope it's been uh, enlightening for the people listening to this. And I hope that you know people are more interested in seeing how the the fight for unionization in the games industry is taking place. Uh, where can people find more information about Game Workers Unite, and if they want to uh, take action or just learn more about uh, pro union uh, information in the industry, uh, where can they look? Yeah. And I first, I just want to say thank you so much for having me on. This was a total blast. And I, I really loved the questions you asked because you were clearly focusing on like getting some really interesting conversations going. So I really appreciate that. I try. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, yeah, in terms of learning more and getting involved, um, I encourage people to follow us on Twitter at Game Workers, um, where we're constantly kind of uh, talking and having conversation about um, conditions in the industry, um, current events and all those things, um, and, and, and sharing information about how people can get involved. Um, if people want to learn more about unionization, um, 
access some of our resources that we have online. Um, learn more about the organization, you can go to gameworkersunite.org. Um, and if you go to gameworkersunite.org slash get involved, you can find a, a comprehensive list of all 25 plus national and local chapters and unions um, affiliated with Game Workers Unite um, and get involved with your local chapter. If you don't have a local chapter on that list, um, you can get involved with the international um, and or help found a chapter in your area. Um, and then in, in terms of myself, um, people can follow me on Twitter at Emma Kinema, um, which is like cinema with a K. <laughs> and then, um, and then, uh, as well, um, I'm trying to actively move away from my kind of day jobs and game development and move to organizing full time, um, because there's just infinite amounts of work to be done. Um, and so if people are interested in supporting my effort to become a full-time organizer for the games industry, um, you can find me on Patreon as well at Emma Kinema again. Awesome. And it's going to be a hell of a GDC this year, I think. I think yeah. the conversations are only going to get uh, more interesting and perhaps uh, uh, more voices added to that room. They're going to need three three separate rooms this time as opposed yeah. to just one pack. <laughs> It'll be like, really exciting. We're just going to take over the actual ballroom where the GDC awards are. And, and to be fair, we kind of have taken over because we're actually hosting the roundtable discussion on unionization this year. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it's a two-day event. Um, but yeah, so we'll ha we have like three or four sessions in the GDC conference. We're going to have a social at GDC as well. Um, so people can follow our Twitter and uh, check, out, um, check out that information once we post it pretty soon. Um, and yeah, we're super excited about GDC. It's our one year anniversary. Um, and it'll be wonderful to see our comrades from around the world again. Well, folks, you can find a new episode of the 1099 here on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify every Monday morning. And uh, next week, uh, we're going to have IGN's editor-in-chief of games, Tina Amini, on. And I'm sure that'll be a really interesting conversation to see how the other side of the industry kind of uh, tackles some of the issues that we're facing now. Emma Kinema, thank you so much. This has been a blast. Thank you so much. Solidarity, Joseph. Yeah.